Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. starting a new series called Shape Up, which I think seems appropriate, right, for the new year and, and setting resolutions and goals and things like that. Now, the um, point of this series really is, we'll kind of get into it. We're going to eventually go through the means of grace, um, but before we get there, we got some ground to cover. Uh, so today, I kind of want to start with a foundation that will allow us to navigate the means of grace, and we'll unpack what those are as we get into them. Uh, for today, I want to start with uh, the story of Frederick Douglass. You guys probably learned about him in school. You know about him. He was a slave that eventually got his freedom, and then taught, he's taught himself to read and write and um, began to fight for the emancipation and the freedom of all slaves, right? And I, I read his autobiography toward the beginning of the year. It's a really short book. I recommend you read it. It is a heavy book about the realities of slavery in our country and the things that slaves went through. And he talks as he's going through the book, he's kind of the story of his birth into his freedom. And he's kind of a ground of laying, like he was a slave, this is what he experienced, and this is why he has grounds to fight for what he was fighting for. In the story, it's amazing how he kind of puts it forward as these like achievements that he's able to get. There's a point where he decides he's going to be free. But what, no matter what it costs him, he's going to be free. There's several failed attempts at escaping. And, and along the journey, he, he sets another goal. And the goal is that he would learn to read and write. There is a point in his story where he's actually sold to a master that in terms of slave masters is actually a good one, if you could say that. And the mistress in this home actually begins to teach him to read. She begins to teach him the alphabet, the letters, the sounds that they make. And he talks about how eventually, even though they're kind, there's something about the sin of slavery that changes people. And over time, this master and this mistress, they actually grow more cold and more angry and chaos ensues. And the master actually puts a stop to Frederick learning to read and write just as he's beginning to grasp the alphabet and the concept of it. And we see that as he's going and determined to, to be free, he's, he learned that if he's going to be free, the key to that is learning to read and write. So he's, he's determined to learn how to do the simple practice of literacy. And he faced all kinds of obstacles along the way. There's one point where he's actually uh, 
lended out, like borrowed to a slave owner who is known for breaking in difficult slaves. That's the reputation that this guy has. And so they're having trouble with Frederick. So they give him to this guy for a year, hoping that this guy will break him, right? He faces whipping. He faces punishments. He's asked to do tasks that almost kill him twice because he has no idea what he's doing, but he's forced to do it anyway, almost trampled by oxen. He's faced all these difficulties. He's told, if he's found with books, he's punished. Over and over again, he faces obstacle after obstacle. He gets caught while attempting to run away. You wouldn't believe what he goes through. Yet, he never gives in. He never gives up. He's determined to learn to read, and he's determined to be free. So what he does is he begins to find excuses to to go into town to run an errand or to do some kind of job to earn his his owner some money or do something like that. And when he's in town, he actually befriends the little boys who are in school, and he he challenges them to competition, right? Because every young man loves a good competition. I can remember getting dressed for school and remembering trying to be faster than my brother, okay? There's just something about competition that drives young boys, okay? And so that's what he does. He challenges them to a competition of reading and writing. I know more letters than you do, but I'm a slave. And so they have these competitions, and what the boys don't know is they're actually teaching him to read and write. He finds ways to keep books and newspapers secret so he can learn to read and write. And as you're reading the story and you, you find yourself cheering for Frederick, you find yourself cheering that, that he will be able to accomplish this goal of learning to read and write, finding yourself cheering that he will eventually be free even though he's been caught multiple times, you find yourself just, just hoping and cheering for his success and eventually he succeeds. He learns to read and write. He learns, he he escapes and finds victory and freedom from slavery. And you find yourself at the end of the book so excited and hopeful for the changes and the challenges that he's going to accomplish. For us, the stakes are rarely as high as they were for Frederick Douglass. But there's something about a success story that really inspires and motivates us. It challenges us and encourages us. When we hear that people have succeeded, it it creates in us this awe and this drive to do the same. A story when someone makes up their mind, they set their jaw and relentlessly pursue a goal until it is achieved, moves us. And New Year's resolutions are no different. Whether it's Andrew who lost as much weight that it equals an average person, or Julie who almost died in a drowning accident but determined and set the goal to swim in her first open water competition in 2023, striving and fighting to accomplish this goal that she had once been able to do but was now too afraid since she almost drowned, and then achieving it, The turn of the new year is an amazing time for us to set goals, create habits, and be better versions of ourselves. But what about Christians? What about those of us that follow Jesus? Are our resolutions, are our goals any different? Should they be different? I love when I hear even Christians talk about wanting to be better people, better family members, better parents, better children, to be uh, to study the scripture more, to pray more, to go to church more, to attend life group more, to listen to more worship music and teaching. I love to hear when believers of 
Christ set their mind to be better people. But I find myself asking at this point every year, what's the point? What's the point of these goals that we find ourselves setting at the turn of the new year? In that same autobiography, Frederick Douglass talks about this master who was meant to break him and how he would not just whip Frederick Douglass, but women and children almost to the point of death. Then he would leave to go lead a class meeting. Right, this is a life group. He talked about pastors who would literally bid, sell, and purchase on human beings and then go set foot in the pulpit to preach to their congregations. It's not just bright behavior that is our goal. If we're just going through the motions of doing better and doing more Jesus things, it's going to fall empty. Setting goals to just be better versions of ourselves is not the point of change. It's not the point of being a Christian. And understanding it's more than just a right belief, right? It's more than just reading the Bible and understanding these concepts of what it means to be justified by faith and, or to made right. Those things are important. And it's important that we go to church and we read our Bible and we participate in the means of grace. But those things by themselves are not the point. Right beliefs and right behavior fall short of the goal of being a Christ follower. So I'm all for New Year's resolutions. Please make them and keep them. But it's more than just doing more Jesus stuff for the sake of doing it. The goal of being a Christ follower is holiness. That's what I want to contend for this message in this series, is that we would grow in holiness. Not just holy beliefs and holy behaviors, but authentic, dare I even say complete and entire holiness. Now, I know that holiness is not a sexy word, all right? It, it's not a big attention getter. People hear holiness and their eyes roll back in their head. They zone out and they're like, oh, okay. Well, I mean, honestly, my first thoughts when I think about holiness is when I went to a holiness camp. Have you guys ever been to one of these? I don't know, probably not. I was traveling for ministry team. We are in the heart of Kentucky, all right? And it is 98 degrees in the middle of Kentucky, and I'm at camp, and there are the women who are leading this thing are in blue jean skirts down to the ground. Their hair is so long, it's like touching the back of their legs. You could see it matted to their necks with sweat because it's so hot, but they refuse to wear like shorts and cut their hair. Okay, look, I'm not judging Maybe I'm judging a little bit. I should probably repent. Okay, the, but there, if, if God has called them and the Holy Spirit has asked them to live that way, more power to them. I'm not doing that, okay? I'm not expecting my daughters to wear blue jean skirts for the rest of their life. If they want to, they feel convicted, that's one thing, but, but it seems extra biblical, right? I can remember being, they did this, this icebreaker, you may have played it before, where you have, it's called two truths and a lie, where you get to know somebody, they tell you two things that are true about them, and one thing that's a lie, and I can remember one of the guys not wanting to play because he didn't want to tell a lie, and I'm like, come on, bro, <laughs> all right? Meanwhile, he felt bad because he was wearing a shirt that had Michael Jackson on it, all right? And I, he also, his, his truth, the thing that was supposed to make our jaw drop was that he had gotten a speeding ticket, and that going over the speed limit was breaking the law and therefore dishonest. Listen, 
If that's the case, I'm the biggest heathen among us, okay? So there's this, so there's this sense, when we hear holiness, we think about this extra-biblical, holier-than-thou behavior, and it makes us kind of turn our nose up to holiness, right? We don't really want to be that so weird, outcast, so Christian that Jesus couldn't even do it, right? More makes being a Christian more difficult than the Pharisees would do. That's what we don't want. So we, we kind of shy back from holiness. But my honest conviction, I'm really convinced that authentic holiness, being made holy through and through, is the thing that I need more than anything else. It's the thing that you need more than anything else. It's the thing that our world needs more than anything else. We live in a world where so many people around us are desperate for hope and healing. So many people that we know, that we go to work with, that we see at the grocery store, that we have at the dinner table, that we call family, are des- they have this desperation that comes from a numbness, from self-medicating or pseudo-connections. They, they're desperate because their lives are going in a direction that will not end well. And they know it, yet they're unable to stop the train barreling in the wrong direction. Many people around us are depressed and discouraged simply without hope. The list could go on. Our world is hungry for God. Everywhere we look, we find people seeking a person or an object or an experience to satisfy their desire for for something beyond themselves, something transcendent, something elevated, something completely other. This is why Blaise Pascal says that the infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable, which just means unchanging, an infinite and unchanging object. In other words, it can be filled with only God himself. The key to unlocking this blessed, abundant, holy-filled life is holiness. So if we're going to live holy, first we've got to understand what it is. What does it even mean to be holy? What is, what is holiness? What is authentic, genuine holiness? Not just understanding, not just actions, but true holiness. The first thing we need to see is that holiness above all else, more than anything else in scripture, is not even about you and I. It's not about humanity. Holiness is a divine attribute. It's a characteristic of the God we worship above anything else. That's what it means. That's what holiness is. Isaiah 43, 15 says, I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. Leviticus eleven forty four through 45 says, For I am the Lord, your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. 
And Isaiah 6, 3, a passage many of us are familiar with, the, the seraphim are yelling and singing, holy, holy, holy. The, the description of God more than anything else we see in scripture is holiness. Yes, he is love. Yes, he has all these other characters, but they're all wrapped up in his holiness. God is infinitely other. We can never understand what it means for us to be holy if we don't first realize that it's God that is holy. He is the one we fix our eyes on. He is the alpha and the omega. He is our creator. We see that otherness is the major way that the Bible talks about holiness. We see it in the, the, think about the seventh day. The seventh day in the creation story is holy because it is different, right? It's set apart as a different kind of day. And when we apply this difference, we apply this otherness to God, it's no different. God is holy because there is no one and no thing like him. God is holy. He is defiantly or definitively different from the false gods of Israel's neighbors. He is different from, his life is different from human life. He is different. God is eternal. He is immutable, right? He is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He always was and always will be. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is unchanging. And more than being unchanging, he is, he's immutably, he's unchangingly good. There's no evil in him. There's no, there's no twisted way in him. There's no corruption in him. He is completely, perfectly good always and all the time. He is outside of creation. He's transcendent. He's above it. He's innocent. He's through it. He's outside of it. He's outside of time. He is completely other, yet he is so near and intimate. There is no God. There is no thing like our God. He is sovereign. He is in control. He's alpha and omega, beginning and end. No human being can see his face and continue to live. You and I sit in here and we are able to breathe because there is a being in heaven that allows it. There is nothing like God. He alone is holy and there is none like him. When we begin to try to understand the concept of holiness, that's where we start. We begin by looking at the holiness of our creator, triune God. But if God is entirely different, and that's what makes him holy, how in the world are we supposed to be holy? We are not God. We are not immutable. We are not Alpha and Omega. So how is it possible? How are we supposed to be holy? Is it even possible? Well, the second point we see, holiness is a divine attribute, but it's also a shared attribute. attribute. (laughs) Scripture, while it teaches that God alone is holy, it also teaches that people, places, objects, and even times can become holy through their relationship with the Holy One. Moses is told to remove his sandals because he is on holy ground. How does ground, dirt, rocks, how does that become holy? Because God's presence is there. The Sabbath day is the holy day set apart for God. The Ark of the Covenant is an object that houses God's presence on earth. It is a holy 
object. When in relationship or connection with the Holy One, God, things can be made holy. Holiness then, if you're staying with me, it addresses both what it means for God to be holy and how humans and other elements of creation can share in God's holiness. The Bible uses this wide range of concepts when it's looking at how humans participate in God's holiness, right? You have bearing God's image, being faithful to the covenant, living wisely, being God's witness over and over again, etc. All these different ways the Bible talks about human beings participating with God in his holiness. And it's through that relationship with him that human beings are then made holy. As followers of a holy God, Christians should be holy, but that should be is a big statement. Can we be holy? Like with real consistency and completeness, can we be authentically holy? I think most of us would agree that Christians can get more and more holy. We see this kind of in the beginning of, or in chapter four of 1 Thessalonians, right? It says that the, the Thessalonians are doing good, but they should do more and more. That they're doing great serving Macedonia, but they should continue even more and more. And I think we as believers believe, yeah, the longer we live, the more we study, the more we participate in these means of grace, we get better at being holy. Like that happens. We all feel that way. But the truth be told, we don't think we can ever be completely holy, entirely set apart. We always, we always, there's no, it's inevitable. We're always going to sin and, and thought, word, or deed daily. That's how we feel. Even though we want to be holy, we try to be holy. Ultimately, we are fallen and therefore we can't be completely free of this intentional sin. We all identify so earnestly with Paul when he writes in Romans, for I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. I don't do what I wish I would. Instead, I do the things that I wish I wouldn't. We all feel like we can relate. Like there's these two things inside of us, battling and raging, trying to be good, but unable to do it because the evil just seems to win over and over again. Most of us are familiar with Robert Louis Stevenson's work, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? This passage actually is what inspired that story. When Paul writes this in Romans 7. And the story, you know, if you haven't read the book, you've probably seen it portrayed in movies or cartoons or, or other stories. But we see Henry Jekyll as this respected scientist who becomes absolutely distraught at the war between good and evil inside of himself. And the truth is that Dr. Jekyll says this, is that man is not truly one, but truly two. And so what Dr. Jekyll does is he decides the solution is to split the good parts and the evil parts, 
that are inside himself into two different identities so that each self can pursue what it wants without being held back by the other. He creates this potion that's supposed to accomplish this, but as most of us know, all it really does, instead of separating the good and the evil, is turns him into the only evil, Mr. Hyde. And there is an antidote which produces the new, Dr. Jekyll again, but he's the same conflicted Dr. Jekyll. He's not the good. It's not the good and the bad. It's the bad and the still torn between the good and the bad. The potion is ultimately a failure. <laughs> and to make matters worse, as the story progresses, the Dr. Hyde, or Mr. Hyde begins to gain control. Dr. Jekyll can no longer control what's happening. He's beginning to lose control over Hyde, and the evil one is beginning to ca- uh, carry out the actions more and more. So Dr. Jekyll determines the only way out of this situation is death. And the book, as it ends, it's a confession from Dr. Jekyll. And if you haven't read it or you want to, spoiler, that final confession ends up being a suicide note. For many of us, this story is a classic, but it's because it captures so clearly something that everyone has felt deeply the internal struggle between good and evil. For many of us, this inner battle is so deeply ingrained on our hearts and minds that it's difficult for us to imagine life, even a Christian life, being any other way. That's why when I read this passage in Romans from Paul, I always felt relief, right? It's saying that he can't control the evil, and that should like make us worry, but I felt relief because look, I mess up, but if Paul, Paul, right? The one that, that wrote most of the New Testament, the one that is just, he has so much wisdom and is able to write and teach so much about God and the character of God and Jesus and the gospel and how it's, he's started all these churches. Paul, yet he feels this way, then I'm good. Right? I'm, if, if Paul can't do it, surely it's fine that I can't do it. I felt relieved at Paul's experience in Romans 7. But as it turns out, things aren't what they seem. As I was reading it and making this realization one day that Romans 7 being controlled by sin brought me relief, I realized that there was a problem with that. Because when we look at Romans 7, it seems that, that it allows sin not to be that big of a deal. If Paul couldn't avoid it, then there's no way I can. Sure, I'll try to do better, and as life goes on, I'll get better at being a Christian, but ultimately, I'm going to fall short, so it's not a big deal. Romans seven fourteen through 25, when read in that light, allows sin to be inevitable and therefore not a big deal deal. I hope that if you've spent any amount of time as a Christian and studying the Bible, you know that that's not how the Bible talks about sin. Sin is a big deal. So if that understanding of Romans allows it to not be a big deal, there's a chance that that's clearly not the right way to read that passage. Now, 
I'm leaning on people who are much smart, smarter and done a lot of studying more than me. So I want to quote them here. Thomas McCall, he, he quotes and, and unpacks how a lot of the church fathers feel about this. Now, if you don't know who the church fathers are, they're basically the first theologians, right? They, they're, they don't live too long after the New Testament period, but they're far enough removed that they have to study and interpret the scripture. So they're kind of like a bridge to, to modern day scholars and theologians. They read the church fathers because they were closer to when the New Testament was written so they have a, a better understanding of that culture, but they're far enough removed that they're still interpreting and working with the text. They don't always get it right. Sometimes they do. So this is the, the church fathers have a lot of weight in academic circles, okay? So this is what Thomas McCall says. He sums it up like this. Classical Christian exegesis, which is just the study of scripture, okay? Classical Christian study of scripture has largely veered away from such an interpretation, noting that Arrhenius, Origen, Tertullian, Basil, Theodore, Christendom, Jerome, Ambrose, Cicero of Jerusalem, Marcaeus, and among others, have not understood Paul to be referring to his own Christian experience. Craig Keener, who is a current scholar, professor at a seminary and pastor, says this, the majority of scholars today contend that Romans 7, 14 through 25, cannot refer to the Christian life. The main consensus from people who are a lot smarter than me, all right, in the academic world and the church fathers and later theologians believe that in this portion of Romans, Paul is not talking about a Christian experience. He's actually put on the persona of an unsaved, unbelieving man. It's similar, but not as disrespectful as mocking someone to make a point, right? The other day, Addie, Addie Lee and Avery had made a big mess in the living room. Lauren had actually just spent a lot of time cleaning it. So I was like, girls, you got to clean this up. We got to clean this up right now. And I was being a little like, I guess, harsh and direct. Avery stood up and she goes, yes, captain, right? She's like making fun of my tone and my attitude about making sure they clean it up. And I was like, not even mad. It was hilarious. Okay. The girl was funny, but it, but it made a point. I realized, okay, I could be a little bit more gentle and, and coaxing them to clean. They haven't disobeyed. They haven't said no. I was just stern from the start. All right. So th- this happens. It's, it's a common way of, of arguing in ancient times. And even today, when we take on the persona of something we're not supposed to be in order to make the point that it's supposed to be opposite. And that's what's happening here in Romans 7, uh, 14 through 25. And I believe it's not just these other people that say it. When I go and I look and I read Romans as a whole, and you put that passage into context, I believe that's what we see going on. Up to this point in Romans, Paul has over and over again pounded home the problem with humanity. All have sinned. Then he gives God's solution to this in Romans 3 through 4. And it says that the, the solution is justification by faith in Christ alone. And then he continues on in 5 in the beginning of 6 saying that, that what are the implications of this justification? Well, it's peace with God, a new life in Christ that is free from sin. We see it summed up in chapter 6 when he's asked the question that we've probably all heard. Why shall we say then? What should we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace, grace may increase? And then the Greek word that follows this is translated different in all kinds of, all your different translations. But they all show this emphasis, this stern 
No, right? You see, absolutely not. God forbid, by no means, may it not be so. So should we continue to sin that that grace may increase? Absolutely not. The Christian life is a life that does not sin, which sounds crazy to say, because we all think, oh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, it's inevitable. You continue to read after that portion in Romans 7, you get to Romans 8. It says there's now now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. It says that there is freedom from the sin of law, uh, from the, the law of sin and death when we walk in the spirit of life. We see that Romans 1 through 6 show a life where Christians are set free from sin. We see in Romans 8 that Christians who walk by the Spirit do not walk by sin and death. So when we look at Romans 7, it's clear that Paul says something here that contradicts the rest of it. He must be doing something different. When we go and we look at it in the context... We see as uh, the authors of a book that I just finished reading called Holiness, they say this. Paul gives us no reason to think that one can be simultaneously of the flesh and not in the realm of the flesh. They can't be a slave to sin and set free from sin. And so if they can't be both of those at once, the I in Romans 7, 14 through 24, 25, therefore cannot be Christian cannot be Christian. The Christian life is one that is set free from the power of sin. It's, an, it's a audacious, optimistic view of grace that when Jesus died on the cross, he really did die for sin in its entirety, that he really can set us free from the power of sin and death. So, The Christian life where we say a Christian must sin daily in thought, word, and deed. There must be something different. While some would argue, yes, that that's true, there are Christians that do believe that we sin in thought, word, and deed daily. My view and my understanding is a more optimistic view of God's grace. I believe when Jesus defeated sin, he really defeated it. I believe there's another perspective that namely God can sanctify, which means make holy, God can make holy believers to the point that they are entirely wholly devoted to him and can live lives of joyful obedience, free of willful sin. The Jekyll and Hyde life, therefore, is not the Christian life. On the contrary, the Jekyll and Hyde life is the life that is a life that requires death. It required the life of Christ to die and deliver us from it. And the book, the novel, provides the blueprint for Christian existence. It provides the fact that yes, death has to occur to free us from the Jekyll and Hyde life. But the important solution here is not the death of Dr. Jekyll. It's the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's the death of Christ for our sins and the death of our old selves with him. It is through death that we are set free, the death of Jesus and the death of our old selves. I know this raises questions. I've got good news. We're going to continue to unpack holiness as the series goes. 
Also, we have an upcoming series called You Asked For It. So if you have questions, write them down. You're going to have a way of submitting those, and I'm going to do my best to answer the most of those that I can from the pulpit and messages, okay? That's coming up. So if you have questions, that's okay. But as I end, I want to say this again. I want to be clear. God can sanctify believers to the point that they are wholly devoted to him and can live lives of joyful obedience, free of willful sin. Scripture to back it up. Galatians 5.16, I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is God's will, your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 5.23-24, this was what was on the board this morning. Now may God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. 1 John 2.1, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Leviticus 11.44, we read it early, earlier. For the I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy. You be holy for I am holy. First Peter, but just as he who called you holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Matthew 5, 48, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. As Charles Wesley put it so eloquently, by faith in Jesus, all who are created in the image of God can experience not only the joy of having our sin canceled, but the deeper joy of experiencing God break the power of that canceled sin. Now I'm done, but I need you to focus in for a minute because what I want to make clear is that this is nothing we do. You cannot complete your holiness. You cannot grasp that holiness. You cannot do it on your own. This is something, God is the Holy One. He is the one that offers it. He is the one that gives it in his grace. Now he does give us grace to accept it, but we can only accept it once he gives it. It starts and it ends with God. It's his grace. He gives us the ability to accept the gift, but the gift comes from him. He is the one that allows us to participate in it. It's all about grace. Grace allows us to participate and grace gives it to us. We'll unpack that more as we go, I promise, okay? It is not our job to make ourselves holy. It is our job to, by the grace of God, pursue God and pursue holiness. And when God offers this complete entire holiness, we must surrender and walk in it. We play a role in what happens with grace when it is given in our lives, but we cannot determine when or how it is given. Christians cannot control how God works, but we can only receive and respond to the grace that God makes available to us at any given time. This is where the rest of the series comes into play, okay? Scripture puts out clear channels for us to experience grace. They are ways that we can pursue Christ-likeness and ways that we can pursue holiness. And Wesley called these means of grace. So as we continue to unpack what holiness is, we'll explore how these means of grace give us the ability to transform us 
and to seek God. Until then, as we pursue this series of Shape Up and Spiritual Formation, this week, this week, you have some homework, okay? This doesn't start with us. It starts with God. So will you join me this week in asking God to search your heart, ask him to reveal himself to you, and ask him to make you holy. For Wesley and several theologians before him, it came down to this. When it comes to being completely holy, is it something that scripture makes possible? I believe it does. And if scripture makes it possible, does that mean that God is able to do it? I believe it does. So if God is able to do it, will he? I believe again, the answer is yes. And now we just pray that he does it. Let's pray.